Podcasting from Oregon in the beautiful Pacific Northwest, welcome to Eye on Global Politics. Sit back, relax, and get ready to explore some of today's most pressing international issues. Now, here is your host, international relations scholar, author, and founder of the International Law Education Group, Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. First, I'd like to briefly discuss climate change and tie that into nuclear weapons as far as the warning time that we have with climate change, the ever-decreasing time, but we have a warning time to turn the ship around and the no warning time at all we get with nuclear catastrophe. In February, we experienced an unprecedented ice storm that knocked out all power for us for 48 hours along with at least a quarter million other people. The first night I could hear the trees and branches cracking and crashing to the ground in all directions. It sounded like a gun battle that lasted all night and into the morning. In the two decades that I've lived in Oregon's Willamette Valley, I've never experienced anything like that. Here's what it sounded like at 3 a.m. Last summer, we had experienced the worst forest fires in Oregon's history, and we were on level two evacuation notice, meaning that we should be ready to leave our homes at a moment's notice. Thankfully, the fires were beaten back by changes in weather and the work of fire crews, but many in Oregon were not as fortunate, and they lost everything, homes, all their belongings, and some lost their lives. Both of these events happened under the still raging pandemic that has to date killed over half a million Americans and many more around the globe. Climate change and global health are two areas that cannot be ignored or dealt with in a casual manner. They must be taken on directly with bold action. Because if not, there is little to nothing we can do about the negative consequences that arrive at our doorsteps due to collective inaction. There's another topic that fits in this category. It has the capacity to arrive at our doorsteps with unimaginable catastrophe, wreaking instantaneous havoc, death and destruction, as well as extended suffering and agony. There will be no evacuation period, and likely nowhere to go. There will be no constant scientific warnings and updates of the situation getting increasingly more dangerous for the next generation. That topic is nuclear weapons. Former U.S. Defense Secretary Robert McNamara said later in his life, with nuclear weapons, there is no learning curve. You make one mistake and you will destroy nations. And with what we know about cause and effect, as well as the interconnectedness of the planet's environment, one mistake with nuclear weapons and you may likely destroy the planet we call home. The United States is the only country to ever have used a nuclear weapon in anger. 
dropping the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki on August 6th and 9th, 1945. Serious scholarship points to these acts as completely unnecessary for ending the war in the Pacific. Why were they dropped? The U.S. had spent $2 billion developing the weapons, and with all that effort, those in charge of the atomic program and in the military elite, they wanted to use what they had spent four years building, and had few scruples about dropping the weapons on a race of yellow people, on the civilian population. I recommend the documentary film White Light, Black Rain. It is told by the survivors of the atomic bombings. It is well done, but disturbing. I had to break it down and watch it in several parts myself. Secondly, the act was partly a science experiment. One bomb was made of uranium, never before tested, and one was a plutonium bomb. How would each one react? Lastly, and most significant of all, the atomic bombing of Japan was a U.S. mythmaker about U.S. military might and was the first act of the Cold War. The show of force via the atomic bomb was aimed at Moscow and to ensure the U.S. and not the Soviet Union occupied post-war Japan. In the five myths about nuclear weapons by Ward Wilson, scholarly details are provided on why it was the August 8th Soviet declaration of war and subsequent invasion of Manchuria and the Sakhalin Islands that caused Japan to abruptly surrender unconditionally, and not the often-cited dropping of the atomic bombs. The evidence for this interpretation is hard to refute. At the very, very least, erases serious scholarly discussion about the inaccuracy of the popular American narrative surrounding the atomic bombs and World War II. A discussion that should be taken very seriously because of its implications surrounding current-day thinking on nuclear deterrence. The U.S. had killed 100,000 to 120,000 Japanese civilians in one night of firebombing Tokyo, and were burning up cities all over Japan. Destruction of cities and civilians don't end wars. History has taught us that. The Japanese leadership had shown that they would not be swayed by such devastation. The Japanese emperor claiming that the atomic bomb has caused them to surrender helped the emperor and defeated Japanese military leadership to save face while simultaneously praising the U.S. scientific achievement of the atomic weapon, complementing their new occupiers which had the ability to destroy every vestige of their previous way of life including the position of emperor itself. It allowed the Japanese leadership to put the country in the position of a victim, a victim of a horrific new bomb, despite the Japanese military committing some of the most heinous acts in the history of warfare. They had not lost militarily, but lost by scientific discovery. It saved face. For the U.S., claiming the atomic bombs had ended the war fit into a mythical narrative that their nuclear arsenal their military might had the power to shock opponents instantly into defeat. This is pure myth. Ultimately, the dropping of the atomic bombs had nothing to do with the saving of lives of American troops and ending the war and everything to do with power politics, myth-making, and terrorism in the name of science. And this points to the crucial problem surrounding the elimination of nuclear weapons. They're not solely, if at all, about security, but rather about power, prestige, and influence in international relations. 
But at what cost? The cost of environmental destruction, human health, creating an international climate based on fear instead of cooperation, and based on the possibility of ending life on planet Earth as we know it in a matter of minutes. The U.S. has built roughly 70,000 nuclear warheads since 1945. 2,000 could easily destroy the planet. This has nothing to do with pragmatic security or deterrence. It appears to be an illness masquerading as normality. It has been noted that a French official ambassador once remarked, if France didn't have nuclear weapons, no one would listen to her. The study of nuclear weapons history and policy is a fascinating study because it is a study of a subject that most people have glaring misconceptions about. For instance, when the Atomic Energy Agency declassified its list of nuclear accidents, we discovered that there had been over a thousand such accidents in the United States. We've seen American nuclear weapons fall out of airplanes in British Columbia, North Carolina, in Spain, and in Greenland. We've seen a Trident II missile in Damascus, Arkansas blow up in 1980 and send the warhead flying into a field. While luck prevented some of these accidents from being catastrophes, such as an activation switch not shifting and blowing off a huge chunk of the eastern seaboard, or obliterating Little Rock, Arkansas, other accidents have resulted in deadly consequences from radiation sickness. We've also seen a Russian commander refuse to order a nuclear strike on the United States in 1983, when Soviet radar had falsely picked up numerous incoming American ICBMs. Watch the documentary The Man Who Saved the World. It should be a mandatory part of school curriculum. In early February of this year, the Biden administration and the Russian government extended the New START Treaty. Signed 10 years earlier, it sets caps on strategic offensive weapons and allows for verification mechanisms. It was set to expire on February 5th, the five-year extension isn't a step forward, it merely maintains the status quo, but its renewal prevented a giant and dangerous step backwards. Had the New START Treaty expired, it would have been the first time in 50 years that the US and then Soviet Union, now Russia, had not had some sort of arms control treaty governing their strategic nuclear arsenals. The Trump administration had indicated its opposition. A concrete step forward toward disarmament came with the coming into force on January 21, 2021 of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, or the TPNW for short. The TPNW has been signed by 86 countries so far and ratified by 54. It came into force following the 50th ratification. The Trump administration had actually gone as far as pressuring other countries not to join the treaty which demonstrates the potential importance of the TPNW. As of yet, no nuclear weapon states have signed the treaty, nor have the enablers who sit under NATO's U.S. nuclear umbrella. Here is Beatrice Finn, the executive director of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, speaking to Al Jazeera. Absolutely. I think that's a really key group of countries that are going to be very important in the coming years. Uh, one of the, the, the real benefits with the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is that it has kind of exposed some countries that have been hiding behind the nuclear arms states. Like so many issues, you know, you have the, the problem countries, the nine nuclear arms states, of course, that are the, the key countries with the weapons that we want to change. 
But around them, there's a whole like circle of around 30, 40 other countries that protects them and protects and upholds this structural problems of nuclear weapons. And that is the NATO countries and the nuclear allied countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, for example, that are participating in exercises, hosting nuclear weapons, and that their military would be part of using weapons of mass destruction on civilian populations. It's the ban on chemical weapons, the ban on landmines, cluster munitions, and now also the ban on nuclear weapons. So this treaty follows on all of these legal instruments aimed to constrain uh, states' behavior in warfare and protect the world and protect people. In this first episode of Eye on Global Politics, we discussed a few aspects of the nuclear issue. Nuclear disarmament is a wide-ranging issue with a lot of details and aspects, politically, historically, and legally. And I look forward to discussing many of those here on this podcast in future episodes. One concrete action you can take if you're in the United States, please contact your representative and ask them to support House Resolution 302, embracing the goals and provisions of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. This resolution was introduced by U.S. Congresspersons Jim McGovern and Oregon's Earl Blumenauer. If you're not in the United States, please contact your representative if your country has not signed on to the treaty. Nuclear issues are central to the Ion Global Politics podcast, and it will be a mainstay for discussion. I look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Ion Global Politics. Keep the faith. You've been listening to Ion Global Politics with Dr. Paul F.J. Aranyas. If you enjoyed this podcast, we hope you will share our International Law Education Group web address, ileducationgroup.org, with your family, friends, and colleagues. Don't forget to check out ionglobalpolitics.com for future articles and podcasts, and to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We look forward to welcoming you to another episode of Ion Global Politics.